This podcast episode is powered by Afropods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Welcome to another episode of the Kenyan Wall Street Podcast. My name is Eric Jackson, and I will be your host today. So today we will be kicking off a series of episodes on artificial intelligence, starting off with understanding what AI is. We hear a lot about algorithms, machine learning, robotics. It all sounds very interesting and scary sometimes, to be honest. But how is artificial intelligence being used and by who? and for what? And are there any threats that are posed by AI? And we always keep asking ourselves this question, will the world be taken over by robots? So to help me in that discussion, I'm joined by an amazing guest today. Her name is Caroline Goski, and she is the global director at R-Square Data Labs, which is part of Rolls-Royce. Welcome Caroline to the show. And to start off this discussion, I'd like you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little about your professional background and what you do at R-Square Data Labs. Sure, thank you, Eric, and thank you so much for uh, inviting me onto the podcast and the chance to, to speak to your audience. As you've said, my name is Caroline Gorski and I work for Rolls-Royce. In Rolls-Royce, I lead uh, R-Squared Data Labs, and that's Rolls-Royce's data innovation capability. And, and we really look at how can a big global power player like Rolls-Royce use data and bring cutting-edge data techniques, including advanced analytics and artificial intelligence and bring that to bear really to generate value, value for ourselves in terms of how we work, our operational efficiency, the speed of our innovation cycles, our agility, our technical advancement, but also how can we deliver value for our customers? So how can we help use data, data innovation to make the experiences of our customers better, to help them understand how to use our products more effectively and more efficiently, and indeed to improve the quality of those products over time and across their life cycle to make them more efficient, to bring to bear what we want to achieve, uh, which is fundamental to our mission of creating more efficient and sustainable power solutions that have less environmental impact for the world. Thank you very much. So you have mentioned Rolls-Royce, which is the leading industrial provider of power systems in the world. And even though R-Square Data Labs was formed much more recently in 2017, Rolls-Royce has a long history of using advanced analytics and AI in their systems and processes. Could you just help us understand how AI has been used at Rolls-Royce and what benefits have been derived from it? Yes, of course. So I suppose I'd start by just setting the context. You know, here we're talking about Rolls-Royce, the global power group, and not Rolls-Royce, the car manufacturer. Um, so I just want to make sure that that's really clear for your listeners, because otherwise uh, we'll, we'll get very confused. Rolls-Royce, as that global power group, we are really one of the world's leading industrial technology companies. And what we do is we power propulsion systems in the air, across and underwater, over land. But we also generate and store power for 
electrification and for other industrial applications. And the technologies and digital capabilities that we develop are, are fundamental to our success in achieving that more sustainable power ambition that we have. You know, our engineers are at the forefront of scientific research in lots of contexts. In 2019, we invested almost one and a half billion pounds on research and development. And clearly, uh, research and development into data engineering and into data science is an important part of that technological leadership. But you are also right that Rolls-Royce has been working with advanced analytics for a very long time. Our Squared Data Labs is fairly new. We were instituted at the end of 2017. But Rolls-Royce has been working with data in its products for many, many decades, and very specifically working to understand the life of a product all the way through its operation by collecting data from the products in the field and using that to understand uh, what we call engine health monitoring, which is understanding the operational performance of a product and using that information both to help design better products, but also ensure that products are used at maximum efficiency and effectiveness and to reduce their carbon footprint. And we've been working in data analytics in that space for more than 30 years is we use that engine health monitoring capability to underpin our power by the hour proposition. So the idea that we can offer our customers the ability to consume and pay for power as it's produced for them in a servitized way, rather than being to pay up front for a capital asset. And data is essential for making it possible to offer that service. In the last decade or so, we've been moving our data analytics into artificial intelligences. And so now we're in a position where the brain that runs our engine health monitoring system for our civil aviation business uh, has a significant degree of artificial intelligence working within that, which helps to improve its effectiveness, its speed, its accuracy, and also to reduce the load on the human analysts who work alongside the AIs to help to recommend actions for our customers. That is very interesting. So if I understand correctly, the whole essence of the R-Square Data Labs was to move the skills, expertise and learnings from Rolls-Royce into an ecosystem where you can work with different industry players like global organizations, startups or even governments to move AI forward. Is that correct? And if so, what progress has, made, has been made so far? Yes, you're right. The way I think about it, data analytics and specifically artificial intelligence development, but the same thing is true when you think about data engineering and data analytics in a broader sense. That's a highly networked and highly ecosystem driven technology or set of technologies. In lots of ways, I describe what we do in R-squared Data Labs as being in a world of physics and you know, hard engineering around power generation is basically a world of physics with some chemistry added in. But in that world of physics, what we do in R-squared is biology. It is that living organic development of competency and capability that learns and that evolves and that iterates. And so it does have perhaps a different style, a different space speed, a different way of working. When you're successful in data innovation, you cannot do it in a monoculture. You cannot do it in a closed environment. You have to do it in a fertile ecosystem because so much of what happens in the advanced data analytics and artificial intelligence marketplace happens from the open source sector, happens from academia, happens from the startup communities, happens from some of the big technology players. 
but it works because as much as possible it's collaborative and the open source approach is very strongly encoded into uh, the data analytics space and you can't engage with that community unless you are prepared to be part of that ecosystem and prepared to collaborate and share so R squared is the way that Rolls-Royce understood it needed to respond to the opportunities in a new way and present a face to the world that was focused on collaborative value generation and that could work into that ecosystem that you described. Absolutely. And I think it's important when you have all these different players, as you have mentioned, be it academia, uh, policymakers, startups, and then obviously using the open source standards to now help advance the industry. Which brings into the other topic about the Emergent Alliance that was formed early this year and of which you are the chair. What exactly is the Emergent Alliance and what necessitated its formation? Yes, of course. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to speak about it. So what happened was, you know, obviously all of us are facing this profound challenge, this profound difficulty that we find ourselves in, in in regards to the COVID-19 pandemic and the impacts that is going to have on our world and the impacts that that will have both on the health of our populations, but also on our ability to trade with each other and to communicate with each other and to you know have economic activity. And so we can see from the global footprint that R Squared Data Labs has, we could see that there was going to be some enormous challenges coming that we would need to face in to, partly challenges to us and our commercial model and you know I'm sure every one of your listeners is aware of the restrictions that have come in for air travel and what that means in terms of the aviation industry but it wasn't simply a reflection that there would be economic challenges for Rolls-Royce as an organization it was also a recognition that that would be felt by countries and companies and consumers all around the world so whether that was nation states trying to make decisions about how to balance off the difference between the risk of reopening their economies because of the virus versus the benefits of reopening the economies to the livelihoods of their people or whether that city mayors or regional authorities trying to think about how to keep populations moving or how to make sure businesses don't close down or whether it's corporate leaders wanting to think about where do they make choices about perhaps you know continuing to invest or or needing to retrench on their investments or whether that's consumers you know wanting to ask questions about when am I going to be able to go back to a nightclub? When am I going to be able to go back to restaurants? Or when can I see my family safely? So those are all huge questions. And, and my team of data scientists came to me and said back in March, what can we do to help? What can Rolls-Royce's data science community do that might be able to help to make recovery from this situation faster? How can we get the world back to work again more quickly? What can we do that might help? And we understood from some conversations with economists in the UK that the skills I talked about before, that 30 years of experience of engine health monitoring, which really looks for and senses faint signals in very, very complex systems of data to help us understand when an engine is needs attention because it's giving a signal that says it either needs to, you know, that something is not working the way it should or there's an indicator that it's reached a certain point in its life cycle, which means we need to inspect it, or perhaps even that it's working better than we thought it was going to and it doesn't need to come in for an inspection yet. That skill focused around finding those faint signals, interpreting them, learning from them and being able to use them to predict 
when new signals would occur, that capability can be applied to the economy just as much as it can be applied to engines. And so having tested that theory with some economists in the UK, we decided that we would like to reach out across our community and propose a pro bono, not-for-profit global data collaboration, specifically focused on trying to find those faint signals of economic recovery from COVID-19 to encourage them, to help to build business confidence, government confidence, consumer confidence, so that we could hopefully show shorten the recessionary impact that we see. And I'm so pleased to say that from launch in April of this year, when we launched with uh, IBM and Google and Microsoft and the University of Leeds and their leader and centre and the Open Data Institute and uh, Truwater, who are a data anonymisation organisation based in Ireland, from that initial and Whitespace indeed who have helped us with facilitating the programme, from that initial launch we now have more than six corporate members around the world. We're operating across four continents. We have more than 300 organisations who want to join and we are you know, challenged to make sure we can bring them on board and we have several hundred volunteers, members of the public and employees of our member organisations who are working on data challenges focused on the recovery from COVID-19. It is amazing to hear the progress that you have made so far in such a short time. Out of curiosity, how can anyone be part of this alliance, uh, be it as a volunteer or an organization? How can they join? And also, uh, you mentioned about 300 organizations that are waiting to join uh, the program. Are any of these in the African continent? So we have many multinationals. I'm not aware of any specific corporate organisations headquartered in Africa, but partly that's because we wanted to make sure that we're very thoughtful about working in territories outside of the UK and Europe in a way that was led by the regions themselves. One of the things that's been fascinating about what we've learned so far is even within Europe, the approaches to COVID-19 are so different that if you start to build a data model from the UK, assuming that you understand how the virus is being responded to in, let's say, Germany, you can make some very bad mistakes. You can generate some real bias in your analytics. And it's very important that that doesn't happen. So our approach to international development of the alliance is that where we have interest from international regions, we're working with stakeholders in those regions to try to not to make those regions join the alliance, but to work with those regions in understanding how could a version of the alliance be set up in that region that is able to draw on the experience in that region, the data in that region, the data scientists in that region, and and make sure that the responses that are being generated, if you like, are can be owned and create a degree of self-sufficiency in the regions. I think it would be a very bad thing if a result of us collaborating in the Emergent Alliance was that we had the developing countries stipulating to the developed countries, stipulating to the developing countries how they should be responding to COVID-19. I think that has to come from the region that you're in, and I think that's really important. So if people are interested in finding out more, they can come to our website, which is www.emergentalliance.org. And everything we do is published openly. It's a pro bono activity. So the results of our work are published on our website, as is all of our code 
So you, you can link through from our insights pages into our GitHub files. You can take our models, you can use them yourselves. We ask you to obviously publish any results back to us, but it is an open source collaborative program of work. When we work with larger corporations or indeed with nation states, uh, sometimes we do do that on a commissioned basis or on a, you know, a kind of cost recovery basis where we are supporting those kinds of larger entities. Obviously, we want to make sure that we can keep the alliance going and it can do good work. But for citizen data scientists uh, or for smaller businesses who are interested in finding out more, then it's very much consumable on a free-to-use kind of free licensing model, a Creative Commons licensing model. And we just ask that you tell us a bit about what you've done with the work and you and you help to share in the collaboration. You make a very good point about bias, especially since we are talking about AI. And the fact that the response to the same problem is going to be different in all the different areas around the world. So for our listeners, if you want to contribute to or to join the Alliance or just see the work that is being done, you can check out the website, which is www.emergentalliance.org. Again, that is www.emergentalliance.org. Moving on. So we've talked about COVID-19 and the fact that it has changed a lot. And especially if you look at supply chains around the world, to some extent, it has increased the adoption of some technologies, like, say, uh, e-commerce in Africa. From where you sit, has the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated adoption of AI in any way? Well, I suppose it might be helpful if I just started by telling you what we call or we think artificial intelligence is in, in R squared, because there are lots and lots of definitions of AI. And it's a bit of a movable feast, right? There's a label for lots and lots of technologies. So I will explain how we think about it and then I can answer that question a bit more appropriately. So I'll give you the Oxford definition of AI because I happen to have it in front of me and then I'll tell you what we think. So the Oxford English Dictionary definition of AI is that it is the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence, such as visual perception, speech recognition, decision making and translation between languages which is quite clear as a definition, although I did read it and think, I'm not sure that's exclusively human intelligence because all animals have visual recognition and dogs and parrots and chimpanzees all have speech recognition. So that's, to see what I mean? The definition kind of fades in and out. So the way we think about what artificial intelligence means for Rolls-Royce and for R squared data labs is we see it as the ability for machines to sense, detect, learn, predict, respond, develop agency and develop ultimately automated and autonomous actions. And so that for me is the evolution of artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence can simply be playing in that sensing and detecting space. So when you have sensors that are automatically collecting information, there is an argument that says 
that's part of the scope of things that is artificial intelligence. Most people, when you talk to them in the general public about artificial intelligence, will go straight to the other end, right? They'll go straight to autonomous robots that are going to rule the world, right? That's where they'll go. <laughs> but the real truth is that artificial intelligence covers a much broader range. I think the place where, if you like, the pivot between the supervised artificial intelligence and the unsupervised artificial intelligence. I think where that shift happens is a really interesting space. So machines that sense, detect and learn in a supervised way, i.e. a human being is setting the rules by which that machine does those things, they're really, really useful. And they've been around, frankly, for a long time. Artificial intelligence itself was founded as a sort of school of technology development in 1955. So it is by no means a new thing, even though perhaps we've only been thinking about it, you know, as consumers for the last 10 years or so. But it was founded, you know, way back in 1955 and has seen a number of kind of peaks and what we call AI winters in then. So peaks of interest and then decline in interest. But I think that first part, that sensing, detecting and supervised learning part is really quite common. We see it a lot. So anywhere that you've got an automated system that's doing something in response to an action you're taking, but it's just following a standardized set of rules. That's part of the family of what artificial intelligence is, but it belongs in that very early and simple part. Where you start thinking about unsupervised capabilities, where a machine is learning not because you've told it what the rules are, but because you've told it what outcome you want to have, and it develops the rules itself by trial and error, there we're really starting to play into the artificial intelligence space, where we've seen an awful lot more activity in the last 10 to 15 years. So there, where we're starting to understand uh, convoluted neural networks, where we're thinking about general adversarial networks, where we're looking at how machines teach themselves and how they develop an understanding of the data domain in which they're playing in order to potentially have that agency from an autonomous perspective. That's the space that you see covered in the news a lot. And I think there obviously are very significant developments by companies in that space, particularly some of the digitally native companies, the Googles, the Netflix, the Amazons, organizations like in Europe, like Ocado, who provide automated warehousing capability for, for large-scale retailers. Clearly, the development of autonomous control systems for vehicles are the work that's been happening in Tesla, but also that's been happening in Volvo and Daimler and increasingly across all of the large aut automotive providers. Plus, of course, the work that's happened in automation of robotics in an industrial context. So in large scale manufacturing processes where human activities may have been replaced by robotic activities, or even in a more advanced sense, you have the development of cobotics where humans work alongside robots. So all of those spaces we have seen, I think, developments over the last couple of decades that have been about, to some degree, about this transition from a, a supervised artificial intelligence where you tell the machine what to do and it just does it at scale to an unsupervised artificial intelligence where the machine learns what to do according to the outputs that you're asking from it. That is very enlightening, uh, especially your definition of AI. 
And it is also particularly interesting to see you talk about very relatable use cases like Netflix, where you're watching a movie and they give you the next recommendation. And to most consumers, we do not see this as AI, yet in real sense, it is actually AI at play. Absolutely. Well, partly because underneath that algorithm is someone who has said, find me the next person who's prepared to pay for the Mulan release. And that algorithm is teaching itself how to find the next person who's prepared to pay for the Mulan release. Many governments, especially in the developed world, have already set up standards and organizations to look at AI and develop guidelines and frameworks uh, for its adoption. However, most countries in the developing world, and particularly Africa, are yet to develop such policies uh, for AI readiness uh, and preparedness. So how can these countries in Africa prepare to take advantage of the fourth industrial revolution and specifically AI? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that I think Africa has an enormous opportunity here, a huge potential, you know, very, very young and fast growing population with increasing degrees of technical capability and expertise, particularly in some of the the areas in East Africa and in West Africa and in South Africa, where the international technology companies like Google, like Microsoft, like IBM are establishing their research laboratories in order to tap into that indigenous skills base that exists in the continent. So I think there's enormous opportunity and potential. I think Africa has demonstrated that when the technological proposition is right and when it meets requirements of the African population, technological adoption, I'm thinking here of the the adoption of kind of mobile payment systems, that's extraordinary. You know, the speed at which those technologies are adopted by the population of countries across Africa, there's clearly an enormous and, and really exciting domestic market across the continent that AI businesses could be tapping into. And that alongside just the reality that Africa, you know, is still the intensely resource-rich continent. And so there are going to continue to be industrial players who want to be in Africa, need to be in Africa, who want to make sure that their production systems, their manufacturing systems, their extraction processes optimise as well as they can be. And that will again be a very fruitful place for the development of indigenous AI capability in Africa to meet the needs of those companies, whether they're multinationals or whether they're African companies that are working in that resource rich context. So I think there's huge potential. But I think one of the things that's a real challenge is asking questions about how can African universities and African countries and the governments of African countries collaborate together to be able to to be able to develop a, a pan-African innovation agenda for artificial intelligence. And I know that increasingly there is more and more work happening in Africa around these kind of collaborative measures. Know the African Union and various African countries and the United Nations want to look at how the continent could unlock the power of data by trying to develop a, a standard data governance framework. And I think that's really important. What you'll see when you look at the rest of the world is probably three pockets of quasi-competing frameworks. You have a European pocket with 
GDPR. You have an American pocket, which is much more liberalized in terms of thinking about how data can be used, has fewer privacy restrictions in place. And then you have China, which has a completely different model where it's actually very tightly controlled, but it's tightly controlled by the state in a way that gives the Chinese AI community who are supported by the Chinese government access to enormous amounts of data, which is really interesting. And when you look at where are the leading, so far, the leading countries in artificial intelligence capability measured by research publications from academic institutions and measured by the presence of AI businesses, whether that's unicorn businesses or scale-ups or startups. The top three countries in the world for artificial intelligence today, I'd argue the first is China, the second is the USA, and the third is the UK. Yeah. And that's genuinely fascinating when you consider the size of the UK in comparison to either the USA or China. But what yeah. that also says to me is what an amazing opportunity for a territory the size and scale of the African continent to collaborate together to be able to to be able to rapidly build on your young population and your technological capabilities to open up a space in that sort of top 10 list. And on that note, we wrap up today's episode. Thank you very much, Caroline, for your time and for helping us understand what AI is. Next week, we will continue with the discussion and have a look at different applications of AI, both good and bad. We will then go on to define what ethical AI is and why it is paramount to have ethics in all AI applications. We will also talk about the recent Rolls-Royce breakthrough in ethical AI and why it is a big step in moving forward the adoption of AI. Thank you guys for listening. See you again. Bye.